Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What I didn't really realize is how freaking big those dudes were, man. These guys, their freaking thighs were twice the size of mine. I mean, they were, I'm like, this is how soccer is. I'm like, these guys are freaking monsters. It's June 15th, 1998. The final minutes before the US men's national team kick off their first game of the World Cup. They're in the tunnel waiting to take the field. And their opponents, Germany, are waiting there with them. As the Americans are well aware, Germany its one of the best teams on the planet. But that didn't concern midfielder Frankie Hajduk. I couldn't wait to go out the Germans. I, 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 was, I was not intimidated whatsoever. For me, the Germans, it, 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 they, they meant the same as uh, a high school player that I was just playing against. Before that World Cup, I probably couldn't name uh, five guys on that team. But veteran starting striker Eric Winalda, he played professionally in Germany against these very guys. I knew Olaf Thon and Kohler had marked me several times. Christian Vorns was, those guys were laughing at me. And I'll never forget Kohler saying, do that's kind of chance, which means I got no chance. It's just eins gegen drei, like it's, it's one against three. What did you say? Uh, I think I just responded, ich weiß, which means uh, I know. I, you're right. Du hast recht. This is American Fiasco. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is American Fiasco. The show that's never afraid to talk about the size of German thighs. I'm Roger Bennett. So, eins gegen drei. One against three. The Germans were laughing about something specific. It was a new on-the-field formation US coach Steve Sampson had implemented shortly before the World Cup. It was called the 361. I don't know where it came from, if he saw it at a club level or if he saw a professional team. We had no clue where that 361 came from. But no one plays that. Uh, he was an innovator. What do you want me to say? <laughs> We Listen, we were just as confused as everybody else was. We had no clue. Permit me to grab my coaching chalkboard and try and explain this to you. There's loads of ways a coach can position his players around the soccer field. Loads of them. And for years, the US have played a common formation called 4-4-2. It's mundane. It means four players on defence. There's four in the middle. And you have two strikers up front who have to try and score the goals. 
But two months before the World Cup, Samson shook things up. He put three players in the back, six across the middle, and left just one lonely striker, Eric Winalda, up top. The 3-6-1 formation, it's rarely used. For one, it's complex. It requires players to be experienced, well-drilled, to understand each other's moves as a collective. It's also incredibly physically demanding. Every player has to be prepared to run up and down and up and down the field for an entire 90 minutes. When it works, the formation's fast, lethal, clinical. But when it doesn't, it can bog the team down and destroy them almost before a ball's been kicked. Nobody understood it. Nobody knew it. Defender Jeff Agus. Steve tried to teach it during trainings. It worked in maybe one game, and that's about it. And So we were all sort of scratching our head going, well, what do we do? For all of our talk about being more progressive, when it really came down to it, we were going to regress to a certain extent. Veteran defender Alexi Lalas. For a lot of us, it, it almost represented a betrayal of, of what we wanted to be. You know what? I, I, I have to agree with Lexi 100% on that. And above all, as Marcella Balboa explained, the 3-6-1, it was a cautious and defensive tactic. Handbrakes on, and the total opposite of everything that had brought the US to the 1998 World Cup. You remember that attack-first strategy that Steve had once proudly called forward-mindedness. We were, let's conquer the world, and now we were, all right, whatever we do, when we go out that door, make sure you don't do this and you don't do that and, and, and don't mess up. That's the striker, Eric Winalda. And we were thinking about failing, not thinking about success. I think this was where Samson wanted to make it his team. Marcelo Balboa. And I think there was a point where he lost a lot of the players. And when you lose key players on your team, you lose your team. I still believe to this day it was the right thing to do. These were, these were decisions based on, based on what I felt was, was best for the team. Coach Steve Sampson. In looking at all of the videotape of Germany, I felt that it was really important for us to control the midfield and to overload the midfield to prevent them from playing through the midfield. I felt that our back line, even with three in the, in, in the back line, we could manage uh, their front runners. Do you feel like this 361 is almost a device that has been used to m- misrepresent what happened at the time? Yeah, I think I think both parties deserve uh, some of the blame and responsibility with that whole process. You know, I literally I started playing it months in advance of, of the World Cup. Not one player came to me and said that this was not the right system. So if they were truly concerned about the system of play, my relationship with them was such that they could bring to me any kind of complaint, any kind of concern, and not one player did. Did you guys tell him you hated it? Yeah. He swears no one ever complained. To my recollection, I complained a lot about it. And I felt that, that I wasn't getting enough help, in particularly in the game against um, Germany. Germany. The game against Germany. The team's first of the World Cup. One the Americans would need to give their all to win. Or at least tie. And Eric Winalda, he'd lost confidence in his ability to play at all for Steve Sampson. It's the only time in my life that I went to my manager and said, 
I'm not your guy. I'm not the one. I don't want to be the one. I'll come off the bench, but if you're gonna, if we're gonna go with this three six one, I'm not the guy. And Steve was so far into his ideology that he said, "I think you are." Yeah, I don't know why uh, they were complaining about that. That's Frankie Hayduck, possibly the only other person apart from Steve Sampson who liked the three six one. For the first time, uh, I felt like I had a role that I, I could, I could kind of go wherever I want, and sometimes, you know, for the most part, I had cover. Um, but in, in but that role, it was also for you. It was liberating. You'll just run, you run were, up, run down, back and forth. It was a, it was a position that built for for a guy like me, a runner. Frankie Hayduck, he was always a little different. He was the one who revered Bob Marley, while the rest of the squad. They spent their time listening to Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and of course, Van Halen. Those guys were very close. They were all friends. They all lived together. They all were different personalities. Some were from uh, 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 summer form. Hey, Hendrix, be quiet, buddy. That's my son. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Hendrix is one of Frankie's four kids. Another one's named after Bob Marley. I'm at his house near Columbus, Ohio. But while he loves Columbus, Sadly for him, the city's about as far away as you can get from the ocean. My number one love in it was, was surfing. All my buddies were, were surfers. All my friends were professional surfers. I wanted to be a professional surfer. But for some reason, also, I, I played soccer. Those soccer skills got Frankie a scholarship at UCLA, where he first came to the attention of Steve. Next step, he was invited to try out for the U.S. men's national team. And before he knew it, in 1997, Frankie was selected for the national squad on a trip to China to play against their national finest. The night before they left, the team was staying together at a hotel in Pasadena. I just left my stuff at the hotel and I went to UCLA to go hang out. And UCLA, about 45 minutes west of Pasadena, Frankie's old stomping ground. Girls and bros and beers. And it was a lot more fun. That, this or China? Next thing I know, I wake up and it's 10 o'clock in the morning the next day and um, our flight's at 10.30. And I'm at UCLA and I was like, oh my God, what? I called Steve Sampson. I was like, oh, I go coach, you know, I'm, I'm at someone's house. Um, I, I don't have a car to get anywhere right now. Um, I, I really don't know what to do. And he goes, I'm, I'm very disappointed in you. Uh, we'll talk when we get back. Frankie Haydock might have got to China, but his luggage sure did. His bag haunted us. This is another teammate, Brian McBride. Every fucking time we got to the airport, we saw Frankie's bag going around like, oh, that fucking guy. That one was one of them where I was like, oof, man, did I just blow it? An irate Samson punished Frankie, leaving him off the team for the next six months. And in the following year, Hayduck experienced just six minutes of playing time total. But once the 361 was devised, Steve Sampson knew that Frankie, fast and energetic, would be a perfect fit. In 1998, Steve decided to bring Frankie Hayduck out of the cold and straight into the World Cup. Anybody that surfs 20-foot waves has to be a little bit crazy. And the thing is that that man is fearless. And I love him for that. And that's what he brought onto the field. So upon arriving in France, the US had that new system in place, and Frankie Hayduck adored it, but almost no one else did. He relied on pace and flexibility, 
which meant veteran defensive warhorses Alexi Lalas and Marcelo Balboa. They were benched. And on top of that, the team had just spent two weeks going stir-crazy at that isolated chateau in wine country. The good news? In Paris, they finally got a chance to sign some autographs. How was the journey? Let the games begin. The first round of the World Cup, the so-called group stage, it works like this. There's 32 competing teams. They're all drawn into eight groups of four, so they play three games each. The two teams who perform the best, they advance to the next round. But the other two teams go home. For the US, they had the hardest game first against the Germans. There's an old English quote that football's a simple game. 22 men kick a football for 90 minutes and at the end, the Germans always win. The US weren't expected to win, but if they lost badly, it would have made the games against Iran and Yugoslavia that bit harder. I felt that um, it was very important for me to exude confidence and not to demonstrate any kind of fear whatsoever. Inside, Steve. Did you feel doubt? Tell me what you felt inside. <laughs> I, uh, privately, I said, this is going to be a challenge. This is, this is going to be difficult. Do we have a chance? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this team is prepared. And all the reports from France are that the team is calm. They are ready and they are prepared to take on what most people consider to be the second best team in the Let world. Let me do a little bookkeeping right now. By the way, while Steve was grappling with self-doubt, so was ABC, because it too had made a bold decision, arguably even bolder than the 361. The network would air the World Cup game live in its daytime schedule. Some of you folks uh, have turned on expecting to see General Hospital. Don't be despaired. WTF, no GH, what's with that? But Oh, Bobby just confronted Luke about his betrayal, and Laura's getting caught up in Brenda's murder. Plus, Carly's been acting crazy. See, we got our own soap opera about to unfold. It's the United States and Germany, coming up right now on ABC. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. USA versus Germany in Paris, France. The final seconds before kickoff. The waiting is over. Well, to be here in the World Cup, USA against Germany in France, Pat Stadium. This is what we've been dreaming about for decades, and we're underway. We at ABC Sports. I think once games start, um, you forget about the cameras, you forget about the lights, you forget about the fans, and you just focus on the game. And to be honest. Uh, I felt that we were managing the game, which was exactly what I wanted. And then there was a mistake on the, on the corner. Far post. Not in, and in. Andy Moore 
just the ninth minute. An early German corner kick causes chaos and havoc across a jittery American backline. And midfielder Andreas Moller rose up to nod the ball goalwards. It somehow creeps past Mike Burns, the American defender who'd been positioned on the line for the sole purpose of repelling that very kind of attack. It's the worst possible start for Steve and the US. Marcelo Balboa watched the goal impotently, passively from the sidelines. You can scream and yell and try to be encouraging to your players, but it's not the same. You're pissed off because you're down one nothing. The ninth minute ticked into the 15th. The US couldn't get a handhold on the game. It's the lineup, the formation, nothing was working. The 30th minute bled into the 35th minute. The Americans still wholly outclassed. What did you see in the Germany game in that first half from your vantage point up high? A team that didn't belong in, in the World Cup, to be real honest with you. And, and, Assistant and, and, coach Thomas Rongen. He'd been stationed in the team's box high up in the stadium to get a better view of the overall game. And, and, and we had no answers because guys were put in positions to fail. And, and as a coach, you got to put players in a position to, to succeed and don't put a player with a particular skill set in a position where they've never really played. And I think that Steve really never never thought about that. Claudio Reyna was supposed to be the closest to me, man. I couldn't see him. I don't know where he went. A struggling Eric Winelda. I was on an island, and, and I kept looking for help. He was given that Dances with Wolves assignment of being out there at the front end of a, of a hopeless uh, formation by Steve Sampson. It's 3-6-1. George Vesey, New York Times columnist meaning everybody back, get the ball to Eric, see what he can do. What kind of offense is that? But when you're by yourself, man, they can, they can just drive. Those, those are European players. They'll drop in on you. How bad were you then? We weren't ourselves. That's all. At halftime, the U.S. had a chance to try and regroup in their locker room. I'll never, I'll never admit to anybody that I was panicking. Steve Sampson. It was a legitimate rational decision that we had to control the midfield of Germany. And if anyone goes back and looks at that first 45 minutes, yes, they will see a Germany completely in control, but they are always playing in front of our defense. We're trying to prevent them from scoring against us. They never got behind us and they scored on a corner kick. And yes, for 45 minutes of my, my entire tenure as the national team coach, I played conservatively. But his team were 1-0 down. So in the second half, Steve Sampson had no choice. He had to mix things up, try and find some new energy. I feel like coaches get spur of the moment uh, type of things. Like they see something and then they just go boom. It's like slow motion. It's like Frankie. And with that, Hayduk was in. Well, you see the intensity in... Frankie's eyes, he's been dying to get into this game. Youngster from California, as we talked about earlier, who's well, for a while couldn't make up his mind between soccer and surfing. Tremendous but surfer. He's, uh, <laughs> happily, he's with the U.S. soccer team right now. Muller free kick. Hayduk and I watched video of his first moments on the field. That was, that was me on 
probably five or ten espressos. You can see my face, man. I'm just, my eyes are ready to go. Like, I'm, I'm in as much concentration mode as you can be in right there. And I'm breathing in through my nose like a bull, dude. Like, I, I literally remember I got a ball played to me and I slipped. The German player, Jörg Heinrich, sees the opportunity and took off with the ball. Literally goes blowing right by me. I mean, I just grab his foot. <laughs> Could have probably been a red card. I ended up getting a yellow card. You, you grabbed him by the foot? By the foot. Just like a football player, American football. I'm like, what the hell sport am I playing here? But still, the fearlessness Hayduck brought onto the field, it energised the entire American team. And seven minutes into his very first World Cup game, he worked himself into an unbelievable position right in front of Germany's net. And the ball, it found his way towards him. Ernie Stork, Hayduck coming down the middle now. They've got Ronaldo as well there. There's Frankie Hayduck. Ernie Stewart, you can see what the speed has done for the U.S. lineup. During Winalda going wide. Regi. Header. Save! Frankie Hedek on the doorstep. What a great piece of play by Hedek. Watch this diving header here. Hedek flings himself at the ball, straining every sinew in his neck to flick it onwards towards goal. If he put it either side of the net, the game, it would have been tied. Instead, he headed it right at a relieved German goalkeeper who was able to slap the ball to safety, leaving press officer Jim Frostlip reeling, knowing just how close the Americans had come. Would have changed the whole dynamic of the game because now you believe, you know, hey, we just scored on the Germans. We've got it. We've got, you know, we've got confidence. When that happens as a team, what emotions do you draw from it? Do you, do you think, wow, our one chance, or are you like, we can do this? It was, it was more, we got this, guys. Hey, it's 1-0 only. We're, we're still in this game. And for a moment, it felt like they actually were. Even the neutral French in the crowd got behind the Americans, olaying every pass they made. But in their desperation for a goal, the US overcommitted, leaving themselves exposed at the back. And in the 65th minute, German striker Oliver Bierhoff exploited this vulnerability fluting a high, lofted, precise pass to his bleach-blonde counterpart, Jürgen Klinsmann. Bierhoff looking for Klinsmann. Settles. 2-0. Klinsmann proceeds to bamboozle the American captain, Thomas Dooley, with his balletic control. The German caresses the ball ruthlessly into the single part of the net where flailing goalkeeper Casey Keller couldn't hope to reach it. It's a remarkable goal born of an elite combination of vision, ability and clinical professionalism. The kind of goal that could never have been summoned by an American foot. And it is a final. So Germany with a goal in the ninth minute and a goal in the 65th minute with a 2-0 victory over the United States. So close Assistant coach Thomas Rongham. I don't even know how to describe it. I just I walked up uh, the Champs Elysees with my head shaking, crying, and going like, "What? The f- what just happened here?" You know, it was like <laughs> we should have known because I had, I had a feeling leading up to it that this is not going to be fun and, and easy. But you still think we can somehow pull it off, regardless of all the things that the coaches, including me, didn't do right. But very early in a Germany game, we, we were outclassed. Okay, it was 2 nothing, but it could have been 5. And, 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 you know, we're hanging in there, but we're not really hanging in there. Steve Sampson, he didn't have time for a walk. 
he didn't even have time to cry. Instead, he had to pull himself together and head over to be grilled by ESPN sideline reporter Rob Stowe. It's been a long time since you guys have been having to play come from behind football. How'd you guys think you fared? Well, I think the early goal hurt us quite a bit. Put us on our heels a little bit. Guys in the first half played a little more conservatively than we wanted to. But we talked about it at halftime. We came out and we played aggressive. We played forward-minded. We played to attack. And against the run of play, we took a goal by Klinsman. It was unfortunate. Yet the loss gave embittered veterans the opening they wanted. An opening to vent. And they went right to the media to point fingers. Alexi Lalas, he blamed the Chateau, telling the Associated Press... We were isolated in the middle of France and then plopped down in the middle of Paris, where it's like a circus. Rue Wegley lambasted the 361. Twice the work and half the help. Eric Winalda blamed the inexperienced starters. You could tell some of us were playing for the first time in a World Cup, he told the LA Times. Tab Ramos. He criticised Sampson's decision to bench Lalas, Balboa and Agus, the veterans, telling the Washington Post, obviously, you don't have to agree. And I don't. It was shocking to me. And to this day, it's shocking to me. And we're only talking about three or four individuals. you know. But I had no sense that they would have reacted that way. After weeks of internal grumbling, sniping and bad blood, the veteran players had embarrassed their media-savvy manager in the sports pages. He was going from the LA Times to the Washington Post to the Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune. You know, he's trying to read them all to find out, oh my gosh, this is not just one reporter. This was, it was everywhere. You know, the, the, the disease had spread. And Steve was outraged and felt violated. This is Thomas Rongen again. He and his fellow assistant coach, Clive Charles, they got calls from Steve at three in the morning. And Clive goes, you know what? Send him home. That's the single. No problem. But you, I mean, you were in a predicament. Yes. I would have sent Alexi and Tab home, and rightfully so. And I think they deserve to go home. This is a radical, it's, a, it's an almost a nuclear option. And it's one Samson tried to execute, only to be prevented from doing so by his bosses back at US Soccer when he asked for permission. And I think that would have been a statement to everybody across the United States that you can't behave that way and get away with it. So you were stuck with a mutiny, essentially. And you, you convened a meeting. Yes. Where you read the headlines out and you called out I the, did. the players. I was so upset that, that I did call out those players in front of the entire team. And I said, how could you be so thoughtless? We were just so numb. They may have been numb, but no one in the room would forget what came next. And I remember Roy Weggerly. He was one of these guys that didn't say a lot, but when he spoke, everybody listened because he was, he was that respected. Roy Weggerly garnered that respect because he was a veteran of the elite English Premier League. There was not a single more experienced player on the American squad. And in this particular situation, he, he just matter-of-factly said, you know, hey, Steve, let's face it, we're all in this for ourselves. This is how assistant coach Thomas Rongan remembers what Wegerly said. Yeah, I love my teammates, but really the main reason I'm here is to showcase myself. Yes, I want to play, and yes, I want to contribute, but I'm, I'm here for, for, for myself. And it was like complete silence. Everybody's quiet. 
it was so convoluted and so unhealthy that that one sentence by uh, Roy summed it really pretty much all up. And basically what the group said, and Alexi said, you know what, Steve? Because you're to blame. And that that hurts. That hurt me. That was a tough blow. And we, we, we never recovered from that one. <laughs> that meeting uh, is, is, is a time that I constantly think about. I don't know what I would have done differently, to be honest. This might have been a team with problems, but a lot of World Cup teams have problems. And this US squad still had two more games left to play, both of which they had a reasonable chance of winning. All was not lost. But even Frankie Hayduk couldn't ignore the internal problems that were festering within the squad. That's where it all started, right there. I mean, um, and I love all those dudes, you know, but um, I will say they were drama kings because even though we lost that first game against Germany, I still felt like we had a, a great chance in the cup. Um, it's Germany, guys. We lost to fucking Germany. Sorry. I mean, it, a lot of teams lose to Germany. Next game. This is American Fiasco. I'm Roger Bennett. American Fiasco is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Joel Meyer, Emily Botine, Paula Schumann, Derek John, Starley Kine, Keegan Zemma, Ernie Intradat, Eliza Lambert, Jameson York, Daniel Guimet, Matt Boynton, Jonathan Williamson, Brad Feldman, B. Aldrich, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, and Sarah Sandbach. Joe Plourd is our technical director. Hannes Brown composed our original music. Our theme music is by Big Red Machine, the collaboration between Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. Audio in this episode, courtesy of ABC Sports and AP. For more about this story, including a timeline and more, go to fiascopodcast.com. Oh, it's Rog. And before you go, I want to ask you a favour. I know, I know, you're doing me favours, like, all the time. But this one, it's important. If you love American Fiasco, please tell your friends. Because in this crazy small world known as podcast, it's the only tried and true way to make a pod like this one get heard. So tell your friend who loves soccer, or your friend who's soccer curious and just about to fall in love with it during the World Cup, or your friend who just loves human disaster stories, tell them about American Fiasco. And I, Roger Bennett, will be in your debt. Again, courage.